everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Words podcast with me, Michelle Adams. This week's guest has written a book that I think is a real conversation starter because it takes the subject of something that we almost hesitate to discuss in the realist sense and always sugarcoat any problems that are associated with it. Discussing motherhood with anything other than sort of adoration for children is a taboo. And that taboo has gone on to inspire this week's author, Ashley Audrain, to write one of my favourite thrillers of this year. The Push was a book that I um, I was introduced to uh, via my agent because we share an agent, and so I saw the early covers um, for this book way before it came out. And I knew that it looked an interesting book purely on the cover alone, but I had little idea of what it was about at that time. When I came to find the subject matter, that it was based around the complexities of motherhood, I thought it just sounded like an absolute thrilling story and I can tell you after reading it that's exactly what it is. The push is so unputdownable that I raced through it and it's built upon very short chapters which just you know usually at the end of the night when you're reading or whatever you can say well I'll just finish this chapter but when the chapters are only a few pages long you keep pushing more and more chapters and so you know before I knew it I'd got this book finished it was absolutely breathtaking and um, sitting down to chat with Ashley about this story was a real pleasure for me, uh, just to have an opportunity to continue talking about the story that I found so gripping. And if you have not yet read The Push, I hope this conversation inspires you to go straight out and get it. Congratulations on being a New York Times bestseller. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was really, I mean, you you know, you sort of dream, dream of that, of course. Yeah. But I, I mean, I really never thought that it would happen or that, I, I don't know, that was really an amazing moment. I will, I will always remember, you know, what that felt like and kind of yeah. never take that for granted. It was really, yeah, really incredible. I'm very grateful. Uh, when did you find out? Oh, you know, it was very funny because, um, <laughs> because it was, so the, the book came out the first week of January. And so I think it's, like, you know, the way it works, it's like the week after, um, yeah. or maybe it's almost two weeks after, I can't remember now, but once they've had like the full tally week of sales. And, um, and I was, you know, it's funny, because in these, you sort of build these things up. And I, I sort of had forgot that it was like, a, it always it comes out Wednesday at five o'clock. And, um, and so I had been distracted, I was doing other interviews that day. And I remember I was in my basement, so it was quiet, because my whole family was home and sort of doing, you know, interviews and podcasts. And, had sort of lost track of that time of that point in time where you know, I, I didn't even think it would be possible. Like it wasn't even on my radar that my editor yeah. would call or tell me. Um, but then she did call to tell me and there was, you know, a voicemail from her and emails once I got off the, the interview I was doing. And it was just wonderful. I think I screamed and was just like so, <laughs> so happy, so thrilled. And then I actually, it was quite funny because I remember coming up and 
um, to tell my family and to tell, you know, as I said, I mentioned, I have a son who's six. So he sort of kind of gets it, you know, sort of gets what's going on, but not quite. Um, And it happened to be actually, I mean, I live in Toronto in Canada and hockey here obviously is a very big deal. (laughs) The NHL is a very big deal. (laughs) And it was the day that the NHL came back the same day, the same night was the very first NHL game that had resumed, you know, in the pandemic. And so my son and my husband were so excited about that, about the Toronto Maple Leafs (laughs) playing their first game that night and it all of course was happening like you know at that same time in the evening and so I came upstairs and said you know told them the news about it and my son said oh great and the Toronto Maple Leafs are back tonight (laughs) (laughs) and then everyone just sort of moved on (laughs) nothing like a six-year-old to bring you back to earth great mom but there's more impre- there's more important things happening in this episode. yeah so it was kind of a funny moment we had a little laugh over that but um but yeah it, it really was wonderful and then it hung on for a few more weeks which was nice to see too but yeah really and and truly I mean that is full credit to the team at Viking and Pamela Dorman books in the U.S. who did just did such a great job with all of their you know pre-buzz and the build-up and it was a Good Morning America book club selection which was wonderful and that really helped um the exposure for the book so very and, grateful and that, for that. You talk about the pre-buzz there. There really was a huge buzz about this book. Um, mm-hmm. Is this your first release? Yeah. So this yeah, is your first experience of releasing a book. And, yes. and you know from the other side, as you were mm-hmm. a publicist in, mm-hmm. in Penguin. So I was you a publicist, yeah. What in this Penguin, is Penguin like. Canada. How do yeah. you feel? You know, it's very interesting because I feel like, um, you know, I feel like because I had that, publishing world experience as you mentioned I worked as a publicity director at Penguin Canada for a few years you know before I wrote the book and it's almost a case of the more you know you know the more cautious you are yeah. in a yeah. way and I yeah. think it's because you know we had worked on and I saw this you know firsthand in terms of the campaigns that we did for books and book books that I saw in the U.S. not even in just Canada because I did a lot of the U.S. books that were released here and you know we've all seen and heard of and know of these examples where Sometimes books do get this wonderful big buildup, you know, these big publicity campaigns and the marketing dollars are spent and sort of, you know, they're the lead title. Sometimes that happens and a book still doesn't work. Yes. And, you know, it it can hit the marketplace and really fall flat in the hands of readers. And I mean, if booksellers aren't quite on board in the way you want them to be, and and then even if they are, you know, if readers just, if it just doesn't appeal to readers for some reason or another, you know, it can it can, that can all sort of be for nothing. (laughs) And it can feel quite disappointing. And I think that that's what's so fascinating about publishing is that there is no science to this. I mean, there really isn't. And, you know, publishers do their best, of course, and teams can really work magic and remarkable things can happen. But but often the books that really work are the books that kind of weren't supposed to work, you know, and yeah. sometimes and yeah. sometimes the books that have all this buildup are the ones that end up being, you know, falling short of expectations. So I did feel a little bit like, you know, I was so grateful to have all of that early buzz and all of that energy behind the book. But I always knew that none of it mattered until readers had the book, you know, until yeah. until it got yeah. into the hands of readers. And so it wasn't until then that I really felt assured of anything. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, that's probably a good thing. And that I think this whole way my expectations have been very managed because of that firsthand experience of working in publishing um and, and also I'm incredibly grateful that it hasn't you know <laughs> it hasn't disappointed <laughs> you know so, so far um yeah so we'll see see what, see what continues to happen but. I mean it sounds like you sort of think that for a book even with all the publicity mm-hmm. there still has to be something almost like a sort of inexplicable 
magic that captures people's attention and the push certainly has this so what do you think it is about the push that has really captured readers oh it's a good question you know I don't I think that I guess a couple things like one I think that what I've sort of observed in other books and with other writers is that and I certainly felt that this way writing the push is that I think sometimes the stories that are in you the most urgently and that feel the most pressing in you, like you you cannot not, you know, write this story. That's really how I felt about the push. And I think yeah. that I think sometimes that can lead to a book that feels a bit different. Um in, in whatever way, I mean, I've noticed other yeah. authors kind of say this, like the book felt urgent in them. And I think you can sometimes feel that urgency on the page. And I think those books sometimes, you know, can speak to readers in a different way. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, I, I didn't really recognize this in the push until it was in the hands of publishers. But, you know, they're, they're, I know that they're now, I can see that there's a lot to talk about with this book. There are mm. controversial ideas there are a lot of uncomfortable notions in this book um you know there are a lot of I think very honest you know truths in this book that we don't often talk about um or that are taboo still for women especially and so I think that that you know gets people talking um and and it all you know I've had a lot of people say to me which I really appreciate that you know they finish the book and they want to talk about it with someone Um, And I think that, you know, adds something to the experience of reading a book. And I mean, those are always my favorite books to read, too, where you finish it and you think, oh, I want to give this to my best friend or, you know, somebody to read so that you can have that kind of a conversation. So, I mean, maybe that. But I I think that I think it's what you said before that there, you know, there is this thing in publishing or what we were saying, there's this thing in publishing that I mean, it really is an art and a science. It's, It's this you know, some books just work and some books just don't. And I mean, there are books that are phenomenons, you know, like the Gone Girls of the wor- world or, um, you know, Where the Crawdads, there's, you know, there's there's so many books that are out right now that just have done absolutely phenomenal things, like true phenomenons. And I think those are the really, you know, special, exciting ones. Yeah. And so. I think for the push as well, there is that sort of, there is that commonality that so many people can identify with some of the things that you're raising in mm. in the push mm-hmm. a lot of people can have experienced the feelings not necessarily in exactly the same way but that that difficult thread that runs through parenthood that nobody ever wants to talk about well the push talks about it and it allows you to think yeah. about the things that you found difficult yourself yeah definitely it definitely goes there and definitely um you know the book was really an exploration I think of of all of those of all the things that we don't say and we don't talk about and fear like I think mm. that this book really you know in hindsight is really an exploration of all of these you know deep-seated fears about motherhood that I think most of us have yeah. you know that um and so and and this you know I guess in a way I've sort of poor Blythe the main character but I've given her all of these you know fears um <laughs> to come true um yeah and so I think I think that it's relatable in that way for sure well we've talked a little bit sort of about what it's about now, but give me a, a sort of more um, in-depth uh, synopsis of what the push is. So sure. if for anyone that hasn't read it yet, that they know yeah. what to expect. Definitely, yeah. So it's a book about a woman named Blythe, and she comes from a history of women who have struggled greatly with motherhood, you know, her own mother and her grandmother in particular. And um, she's very determined that she's going to be different, you know, that she will have a different experience of motherhood and she will be, you know, the very warm, you know, present, engaged mother that she wished she always had. 
Um, and so she and her partner, his name is Fox, they decide to have a baby and they welcome uh, a daughter to the world whose name is Violet. But it's not long until Blythe starts to feel, you know, there is something wrong with Violet. You know, she is quite a detached and aloof, um, an angry little girl. And, you know, soon she goes to preschool and starts to act maliciously you know, towards other children. And the problem, of course, is that her husband, you know, cannot see what Blythe sees. So he thinks that this is very much a result of the maternal anxiety that Blythe has carried for so long, you know, her stress about motherhood. Um, and so they try to move on and they have another child. Um, and in that um, baby, you know, Blythe really does find that connection she's looking for um, in motherhood until something in the family goes terribly wrong. And, you know, they're really forced to take a look at who their daughter is, um, you know, who Blythe herself is, um, you know, what has happened. And, you know, the family unravels from there. It definitely um, taps into a lot of motherhood fears and anxieties yeah. and I'd love to know how because you wrote this as a mother yourself and, and so I'd love to know how you were informed to write this book about if it was from your own feelings from research from yeah. um, things that you'd seen in the media what was it that drove you was there a question a topic yeah yeah it's interesting I, I think in a way you know, sort of all of those things to some degree. But I, I think that, you know, I think there's two things. The first is that, you know, I had really always had a really strong curiosity about motherhood. Like it was one of those things that I felt even as even in my teens and in my 20s, like sort of obsessed with the idea of, you know, not that I ever, I mean, for a long time, I didn't think I wanted to be a mother or that I would be a mother. It, it wasn't in a sense of wanting that experience. It was more wondering why women do it you know why do we choose to become mothers and what does how does motherhood you know in its many different forms like however that looks how does that change us how does it change our identity and our lives and and I think I was always surrounded by you know very picture perfect mothers I have a wonderful mother um, and you know wonderful grandmother and you know every mother figure in my life was always so you know strong and um, you know, picture perfect, as I said, but I always knew, you know, even I remember thinking this, even as being, you know, a young woman, that that was not the reality, you know, that, that there were, that there was something else there underlying that all. And also that it wasn't like that for everybody. And, mm -hmm. and I think my curiosity was always, well, what happens when it does go wrong? You know, what happens if you do regret that decision? Like that has to happen. I, I always was very aware of the fact that there had to be women out there who regretted it or had to be women out there who, didn't like their children or love their children or, you know, for whom the experience was not as they expected. And, and so I think that had always, you know, intrigued me. And then when I became a mother myself, I really experienced firsthand, you know, that huge difference between how you are meant to think about motherhood and speak about motherhood and um, how it is supposed to be versus how it really can be. You know, and I, I was lucky that when I had my son, you know, I had a very strong connection with him right away. And, you know, I didn't suffer from postpartum depression or, or anything like that. But although we had our own challenges because my son was quite ill. Um, but but I but really, I remember just thinking, like looking around at all my friends who were, you know, becoming mothers at the same time that I was and just thinking to myself, like, wow, there is so much none of us are saying, you know, yeah. there is so much that yeah. and there's so much that if we do say it, we feel such a sense of guilt and shame. And where does that come from? And yeah. and so that's really where the idea or the kind of the influence, I think, in the book was is, is sort of wanting to explore 
all of that darkness and all of that fear and all of those truths through fiction, you know, through this character of Blythe. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that because my daughter was also sick when she was born. And um, there were so many things that you sort of experience mm. in that, that the stress of normal motherhood is kind of for certain things multiplied by a thousand. And you just, because it's a time when you question yourself so much, you're questioning, am I doing this correctly? Am I getting it right? And it's, you know, her life depends on me getting it right. So yes. what if I put mm -hmm. the nasogastric tube down into her lungs and, and drown her with milk at three o'clock in the yes. morning? What am I going to do? So yeah, that fear yes. and also... I guess a sense of isolation that like I really mm -hmm. am on my own in this like there's nobody mm -hmm. that can help me here like what am I going to do if this if I don't get this right yeah that right really and we came across in the book absolutely and we really have that in common it's true that experience of having you know infants or young children with with an illness and with my son he was two weeks old when he became very ill um and he right. was diagnosed with a chronic illness and so he still has that although it you know he will live forever with the with his diagnosis but it was really that first year or so of life that yeah. was that it was exactly as you were describing, um, yeah. you know, and, and I think you sort of think I'm sure that you related to this as well, but you sort of feel like you, you know, should be able to provide certain things for your child and that they should come yeah. easy and natural. And I remember yeah. and you mentioned the nasal gastro tube and, you know, my son had that as well. And then he had a G tube that went straight into his stomach through right. his abdomen. Right. And. And, and that, that feeding, that whole process of feeding and nourishment and growth, I mean, for yeah. me was really difficult. I mean, the fact yeah. that, it, and, and it was just this thing that was coming, supposed to come so natural, you were supposed yeah. to feel, and it just wasn't happening, you know, yeah. for him at all. And yeah. everything was about every ounce that went in and how it, you know, it was just, we were in a whole different world of stress and anxiety. I, and I mean, I, you, I listened to your pot, your wonderful conversation that you had with Catherine May. Um, I listened to on, on the one that you did with her you uh, on so wintering much. with her. She, I mean, I think she's so wonderful as well, but she talks about that period of wintering that we, you know, all yeah. go through in some way or some yeah. another. And when I look back for me, you know, not it, mother, you know, the motherhood and the process of having him was not that, but dealing with his illness, you know, was certainly yeah. a, a period of that and yeah. sort of coming, you know, really kind of having to sit with it and, and all of that. I mean, you, you know firsthand exactly how that all felt. Um, yeah. And so, well, you know, my, and so, you know, bringing that back to the book, well, Blythe's experience was so different than mine, thankfully. <laughs> you know, I did Thank not have the excuse. Yeah. Very, Blythe is very much fiction. Her story is very much fiction. But at the root of it is that idea of expectation, you know, and that the expectation of motherhood and how you are, you know, how you, what you go into it thinking that it will be like and what it is really like and how challenging it can be when society has taught you that it should feel and look one way and then it is another, you know? And so, yeah, I think we certainly have that in common <laughs> with our experiences with motherhood. Mm -hmm. That kind of, it leads me on into the, another thing that I wanted to ask as well, which is about the other relationships in the book, because for me, mm. it was those relationships and how Blythe was interacting with the other people in her life that actually were also so nuanced that it felt so mm. real. I mean, we can talk about her mother-in-law, her husband, mm. her own mother, and it was, you mentioned about expectations and what other mm. people have expectations of mothers and what they should and shouldn't look like or how they should and shouldn't behave. And um, the marriage in particular was mm -hmm. so interesting to me. So talk to us a little bit about the relationship between Blythe and Fox. 
Yeah, thank you. Yes. Um, so, you know, I really loved writing about their relationship, you know, as as fraught as it was, as troubled as they're they are. They're a brilliant couple. They're so, Aww. they're like, they're like yeah. the friends that you know down the street. They're, they're people that you can identify with. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I started writing this book, it was, you know, the voice of Blythe. I should say as well that the voice of the narration of the book, the voice of Blythe, um, is is in this sort of hybrid second person in a sense that, you know, she is writing as the reader, you feel like she is reading to you or writing to you. And she uses the word you quite a bit and, and who she is writing to or who she's speaking to is her husband. And so this is very much sort of written like this sort of memoir or a letter of sorts written to her husband, whose name is Fox. And so, so it feels, and, and I never questioned that I just it was always the voice in my head and I just sort of went with it um and and as I think that that why that was is because I wanted to feel I wanted the reader to feel intimately in this marriage I wanted them to feel like they were right in the middle of exactly what it felt like you know to be in this partnership um and so that was important to me it, the book was always in that context you know that that was important to me that the marriage be a big part of the book and I think you know like many couples you know they start off feeling like they do really know and understand each other, you know, and that they do have the same, you know, expectations of life and that they have very fair expectations of each other. And, you know, Blythe goes into that knowing that she has this nervousness and this anxiety about motherhood, but he like, like I think any good husband would do, you know, at the beginning, he really tries to quell that in her and he really tries to reassure her. And, you know, he says things like we've all said to other people and people have said to us, you're going to be a great mother, you know, don't worry, you're going to be wonderful, yeah. you're loving, you're nurturing, you're caring, um, which is kind of the natural thing to say. And, you know, she really deep in her heart, you know, is, is very skeptical about or questions that and wants that to be true, but doesn't know if it will be. And in a way, you know, I think that that, you know, narrative around the things that he tells her and how reassuring he is, almost makes it harder for her you know, to tell him the truth when things turn out to not be that case, you know, because he, yeah. he is so convinced of it. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, you know, they, I think ultimately, I mean, there are a lot of things that go on in their marriage that are very challenging and we will save those spoilers. But I think that, but I think really it is that he has such a high expectation of who she should be as a wife and as a mother. And when she can't meet that expectation, um, he sort of turns, he turns on her, you know, or he sort yeah. of turns away from her, I should say. Yeah. And um, there is a lot, he sort of enters this place that eventually becomes sort of a gaslighting of her, you know, in a sense that her truth and her reality is so inconvenient for him and for the life that he wants with this family that he really just shuts her down and doesn't want to hear it, you know, and makes her feel like this is her problem and not his, yeah. you know, because of what she believes about their daughter. Um, and I, you know, and I think that the mother-in-law character who you mentioned, you know, was important in a sense that it helps us to understand the life that Fox comes from. He yeah. comes from a perfect mother and a perfect wife. And he comes from a woman who really puts on the smile and doesn't ruffle any feathers and marches on with it, you know, and, she, and, and the mother-in-law sort of gives Blythe that advice too. Like, yes, this is hard for all of us, but you're meant to suck it up and, you know, be the mother. This is your job. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there, we, we sort of see why he is the way he is and how society has sort of taught him, you know, to be the way he is, although we don't, you know, forgive him for that. But that that is kind of, you know, the reason, I think, yeah. behind the way the way that he he acts. And and the way they fall apart is so genuine. Mm. I don't think I'm spoiling anything mm. by saying that it goes badly. Yes. But just the, 
so many relationships and marriages, they don't fall apart because there's one solid episode that everything sort of exploded. It just sort of chips away at the trust, the love, the connection. Yeah, exactly. And I really, I wanted to show those moments. I wanted to show those smaller moments that, you know, could feel insignificant to another person or or perhaps could feel insignificant to Fox, but they were quite significant, Mm. you know, for, for, Blythe, the way that he speaks, you know, the, the gestures that he makes to her or the things he does or doesn't say to her, they are small things, but they speak volumes to her. And as you said, that's exactly it. It really sort of chips away at how she feels about their marriage, how she feels about herself. Um, it's, it is a slow march into, you know, the place where they, where they eventually get to. And there are, you know, of yeah. course, other sort of bad things that, that you know, break them. But um, but it's not just the one incident. You're right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the part I really loved writing about, you know, about them, about their marriage and the day to day, you know, that kind of got them there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The day to day. I love reading about day to day in novels, yeah, especially psychological thrillers, because it's always the day to day that impacts us the most. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah, me too. Um, so one thing I'd like to ask you about is mm. how you prepared for writing about mm. the loss of a child because Blythe goes through something that is every parent's worst nightmare mm-hmm. in losing a child. Um, so how did you how did you get to the point where you were one ready to write about that and mm-hmm. then get getting through the actual drafting process to to yeah. feel that you'd done it in the wonderful way that you did. Thank you. Um, no, it's a great question. And it's interesting because I, I think looking back, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't think I thought, you know, too much about it at the time. And looking back now, I, I can sort of better analyze, you know, sort of where, where my head was at then. But, you know, I think part of it is that I didn't, I, you know, I didn't set out, oh, hi, <laughs> you have a little visitor with you. We have a visitor. <laughs> Hello. Don't, hi. Don't Hello. <laughs> Come for a snuggle, a mid-podcast snuggle. That's so lovely. Yeah. You like this. <laughs> okay. Are you getting down? Oh, you want to sit back? Okay. okay. Perfect. Oh my gosh, don't ever apologize. No, as I said, I'll probably have a visitor in a moment as well. So <laughs> do not worry. <laughs> do not worry at all. Um, yeah, but, you know, I think, um, you know, looking back... I never, I didn't, it wasn't always my intention. I didn't always know that there was going to be, you know, this death of a child in the book. It, it wasn't something that I had, you know, plotted from the beginning or sort of knew was going to happen. It really sort of more happened, uh, you know, more organically sort of as I was writing through what Blythe's experience was. Um, and so I, and I think that was probably a good thing because there was no kind of, you know, psyching myself up to do that. It was sort of just kind of, yeah. you know, happened in the experience as I was writing. And you know, what's so interesting is that, you know, even though I had, you know, a son around that same age when I was writing, um, you know, I didn't, now when I've gone back to read that part of the book, I find it more emotional and more upsetting than when I was writing it. Yeah. And I don't know if you have found this with your writing, but there is something less kind of upsetting about writing something like that than reading it and and yes. and for me I think it's because you're in control you know you yeah. really as the writer you are in control of exactly what is on the page and what is going to happen next and the emotions and you know every word and so it feels a little more um like an active thing than a passive you know thing as the reader 
Um, and so, yeah, it, it is more upsetting now when I read it, or more emotional when I read it now than, than when I wrote it. Um, and I also think too, like we were just talking about, I mean, I think that I was going through, you know, my own challenges with motherhood and a darker side of motherhood. And, and I think there's something about, you know, although I was not, you know, did not experience, you know, that grief or that death of a child, thank God. And hope, hopefully never, we all, of course, every mother hopes they never do experience that. Um, there was something a little cathartic about writing through such a dark thing, you know, such a dark experience when you're having other dark experiences yourself. I mean, it, yeah. writing can be quite cathartic that way. Yeah. And so it all felt um, not that extreme, you know, not, not that extreme, I guess, to be writing about that in a weird way. Yeah. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes you can approach a certain emotion from a different place. Yeah. And you can deal with your own story almost by, by just putting it into a different context. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly, I think, what the situation of writing through Blythe and her motherhood experience was like, you know, for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, nice to hear you say as well that the the loss of the child was something mm. that happened very organically um, yeah. during the writing process. What mm-hmm. kind of plotter are you? How much did you know mm. about this story before you set out to write the first draft? Yeah, so I'm not, I, well, for the push, certainly, I was not, a, I did not plot. I was not a very good plotter. I, did not. <laughs> I really just, I really didn't have much of a plan. You know, I knew who the characters were, I think, especially Blythe, but that, you know, the core three of her family. And really, it, it started very much just with those scenes, those, you know, day-to-day scenes of motherhood and kind of what that looked like. Um and, and, and yeah, that, that was really the focus of it. And the plot, I, I remember getting to one point where I thought, okay, now I do need to stop and put a plot into place because I have no idea where this book is going at this yeah. point. Um, and, and I don't know that that was necessarily a good thing or a good idea because I feel like in my revisions of the novel, I, I really had to focus on plot and on structure and rewrote that many, 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 many times. And the plot changed a lot. I mean, I think the, I was sort of working on the plot and the structure right up until like, you know, the last rounds of edits, I would say with my editors. Um, and, and I, yeah, so I think that that was something I struggled more with and like, you know, character development and, you know, I'm working on my second book now and I tried to plot it more. I tried to, from the outset, um, put together more of a structure for what was going to happen. And I don't think that's really helped me (laughs) to be honest, because (laughs) I'm still really struggling with structure and plot. And so I think that's probably just something I'll always have to really work on is nailing that. Whereas the kind of the characters and the you know, the themes and all that sort of come a little easier to me. So, yeah. That's we'll just see. like listening to myself <laughs> answer the question. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you because you've written different kinds of books. I mean, with a thriller, I think most thriller writers probably plot out a little more, right? Because you have, you have to worry about things like twists and pacing is more important. So, yeah, I wondered if maybe you did more of that too in, in I, the thrillers I, that you were working on. I do book. and I don't. Um, I think some books I know exactly what I want to happen and it's just about finding the route through from A to Z kind of thing. Um, But most books I really don't know. And the book Mm. I'm writing at the moment, I've written it, I've only really written it once and I'm writing it a second time now. But I, today actually, today I know I've changed something fundamental and that mm. it's going to change my next draft quite significantly. But I would never have, I would have never had that idea had I not just been freely writing. If right. I had tried to stick yeah, right. to a plot, that would have never have happened. And 
it's one of, I mean, perhaps I'll mm. get to the end of this draft and I'll say, what was I thinking? Like, that is a <laughs> terrible idea. But I don't, I don't feel that's going to be the case. I feel like I'm going to get to the end of this draft and say, right, now I have to You've go got, back to the yeah. first half of the book and make sure that that works. Yeah. Uh, but I would have never have tried that if I had have plotted it ahead of time. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm trying to remember, I had a conversation, I think it was Lisa Jewell, um, who had, who said, to, I mean, she obviously has written so many brilliant, you know, best-selling books in the suspense thriller category. And I think that, I think it was her who said she doesn't plot ever, that like, she really just lets the book go. And, and I, I, there is something about that too. And that if you want the reader to feel surprised, then maybe you as the writer have to also feel surprised. You know, I think there is, Truth to that, for sure. When do you write normally? Do you write during the day when your daughter's at school or do you, what, what's your usual routine? My routine's changed a lot over the years because mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm by, by sort of profession, I'm a trained scientist. So I used to work in a medical practice. And so I would write my books in between patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and wow. so then it was much more sort of, I would have ideas that would constantly be percolating and I'd try and get back to the computer to quickly get them down. Whereas now I write full time. So when she's at school, then I'm able to just work. But sometimes actually that's not the best way. There are times when I actually fill my days with other things because I can't, I can't always write my way through a query or, you know, I can't Mm -hmm. sit from nine to five every day. It's, it's a really nice idea because if, if I could write from nine to five, well every day I'd write four books a year yeah (laughs) and I'd be doing really well (laughs) but um but it doesn't it doesn't always work like that way Mm. so I think you do with writing even if you are able to sort of dedicate full-time hours you do sort of have to be prepared to let it ingress into your personal time or your weekends because sometimes that's right the ideas come at inconvenient moments that's right. Exactly. The motivation, the ideas, I mean, all of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Cause I think a lot of, I mean, I think motherhood, you know, complicates that too, because you, your energy is not always so predictable, you know, and your schedule is not always, totally. even when they go to school. I mean, yeah, I, I really found that too. I found, uh, I found that too. I, I, I love the idea of writing every day and having this really regimented, you know, system and such a good routine of that. But I, I, I've never been able to sink into that, you know, despite all of the writerly advice that that is the best way to do it. I've just never been able to find that, you know, rhythm of every single day yeah. between a certain, you know, a certain amount of yeah. hours. Yeah. yeah. One day, one day. <laughs> yeah. It helps me to have sort of like a, if I'm writing a draft, it's got to be 2000 words a day. Mm-hmm, that's that's mm-hmm. kind of like my target. But it's not always possible to do something like that when you're doing something creative. Yeah, it is tricky. It's tricky for sure. Yeah, I've been doing like during the pandemic, it's been especially hard. I mean, I'm in Toronto here and there and we've had, I think, like, I don't like more lockdown days than almost like any other city. (laughs) Like it's we've been in lockdown forever. We are still in lockdown now. And so you're still in lockdown at the moment. We still are. Yeah. And so school's been closed forever. It's, It's just it's been hard to like there's nowhere to go to write and so I'm literally always just trying to do work from this spot where I'm talking to you now here at the kitchen table with people home and I mean it's it's just not the same you know it's very difficult this year to kind of find any kind of inspiration or rhythm you know it's been hard I've been trying to do early mornings like wake up at five and write until my kids wake up um which I was in a good routine of that for quite a while which was helpful like that was that was a good chunk chunk of routine I guess for as long as it lasted yeah something it was something I'm kind of a believer as well that um, 
even if you don't have the exact words that you want on the page, mm -hmm. like you're saying, as like once you've got a book, you can start to mold it. It's yeah. a bit like having a lump of clay. Without the clay, you can't mold anything. But exactly, Less once daunting, it's written, it's for written. Sure. Yeah, because there are those different phases. There's the phase of writing the rough draft. You know, the first rough draft is yeah. takes is just a totally different mindset than the revision mindset. You know, yeah, yes. right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so are you managing to write at the moment much? Have you got a second book written? Are we are we going to yeah. be seeing that? I I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yes, no, I am. I'm working on my second book now. And I you know I was lucky because I had quite a long stretch between when the book deal was done, like when the it was a two book deal. So when that was sold versus when the push came out was 18 months. So right. that was quite a long period of time. And so, yeah. you know, through that, um, through those 18 months, I was, of course, working on revisions of the push with my editors and getting it ready. But I also had a chunk of time where I could start working on the second book before yes. this book came out, which was really helpful. Um, yeah. So I had a sort of a rough first draft done um, by the time the push came out. And then I've been working since the push came out, I've been working on a first revision of that. Um, and now I'm working on kind of a second revision to focus on some other changes. So, yeah, I think I, I yeah, I've, I wish that I had more time and focus, like just, I think just mental and physical space, you know, to, to, to work on things right now. I'm looking forward to hopefully the fall when things kind of get back into a better place, but I've really loved working on the second book. I mean, it's about a lot of the same themes as the push, you know, tackles motherhood and marriage, um, you know, although in a different way. Um, yeah. and, and, and in a way, I think, you know, all, as distracting and overwhelming as, you know, the past year or so has been, it's also been really nice to have this thing to be working on, you know, this new project to be yeah. during the moments where there is time and space. It's been nice to have something to, you know, focus yeah. on. And yeah, it's, that's been nice in a way. I think yeah. we've all needed it, but yeah. so many people have struggled to find that yeah. sort of, like in your instance, it's been time. I've spoken to other writers who said they've just found it really hard to find anything creative or, yeah. Um, mm. and I know for myself, like I just feel like, we were talking about having a holiday, which in yeah. itself is just oh. wild. And like oh, even talking about idea. having a holiday. <laughs> but um, we are. Um, so, yeah, we're saying, you know, maybe we can just head over to, to Greece and, and test how things are. We've all been vaccinated yeah. now. So, you know, you feel like you have to travel. And for me, yeah. I realize that without doing these normal things I just don't I don't have the same curiosity about the world yeah. and yeah. it's that curiosity seeing things even simple things like tiling or the sun or flowers these are the things that give me my ideas yes I totally agree I totally agree and relate to that and it, it's also just the how refreshed you feel to walk away from your everyday and then come back to it you know none of us have had that it's that break that being refreshed being re-energized I really miss that too. I, I, I feel that absence in my writing and in productivity and all of that as well. And even I think day to day, like, you know, we, like it's been so long since we've even here, especially like been able to go to a coffee shop, you know, like I haven't been yeah. to a coffee shop, yeah. even just that process of walking down the street with my laptop and sitting somewhere differently to have a cup of tea and write. I mean, that, it, it sounds like such a small, simple thing, but it really changes, I think, the way, like your mental state and the way you approach the page and the buzz of strangers around you and a different, all of that. I mean, all of that really contributes to what you bring when you sit down to write, you know? And so, yeah, it's all, it all really matters, I think. Although, you know, there are some writers who say, well, you just can never be precious about that. You have to just be able to write anywhere, every time, anytime. And there is that too. 
but I think there's the ideal state of where do you feel your happiest writing, you know, and it's often not at your same, you know, same spot in your house with, you know, three other humans running around. (laughs) Absolutely. And also just we've all been through the same thing this year. It's probably the first time we've all across the whole world uh, been experiencing the same thing in a different way. And, and we've all had the same emotions and um, experienced the same kind of fears about where's our job gone? Where are our friends? Mm, Are our family okay? Have we lost anybody? And, um, and it's very hard, I think, to maybe sort of explore other more nuanced emotions other than just being totally stuck in the fear of what we're doing. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. We are all in this very particular, I think, emotional state this year, you know, fueled by the news and fueled by the anxiety and it's very different. It's we were all sort of changed by that right now, and it's going to be so interesting to see how that reintegration, you know, into back into a, a, a somewhat normal life, you know, over the next six months, especially. I mean, that it, like you said, going on a holiday for the first time and being able to go to the coffee shop or or even like have a real like interesting face to face conversation with somebody, you know, is also that, you know, you might have met weekly before for a coffee or something like even getting that back because you're right, it's the ideas and the sparks and the conversations you overhear all of that, you know, makes its way into your writing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's exactly that just a sort of pulse of normal life. Yes, exactly. And so just um, tell us the paperback is going to be out surely soon. Yeah, I think the plan is in the new year, I think the paperback will be out. Um, So that will be exciting. Yeah, it'll be another sort of exciting moment in this. Yeah. So I think I think January, February. Okay. And a second book we could expect when? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think they're still deciding on the date um, for the second book. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I, I mean, I guess they'll have to sort of work backwards and where we're at right now. So hopefully I can deliver it not too far into the future and then they can kind of get their publication schedule set. But yeah, I don't know. It'll be fun to see. It'll be exciting to see you when it all comes out again. It'll be fun. I mean, there are a thousand other things I'd probably like to ask you, but I'm very mm. conscious of the time and oh, no how problem. how sort of thankful I am that you've shared some of your very precious time at the moment with me to oh, chat about the push. Um, my pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast because it's been such a nice thing to talk about this wonderful book. And I hope that anyone that hasn't yet, I don't know how anyone hasn't yet read it, but (laughs) (laughs) if they haven't, then they will certainly enjoy doing so. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Is there any chance I could encourage you to do a reading? Do you have? Oh, yes. So I will read from, I think, chapter four. Okay. If that's okay, I'll just go ahead. Um, so this is obviously towards the beginning of the book. It's a shorter chapter, but um, it really takes a look at the relationship between Violet, or sorry, the relationship between Blythe and Fox and their marriage. Okay. I remember exactly what life was like in the time that followed, the years before our own Violet came. We ate dinner late on the couch while we watched current affairs shows. We had spicy takeout on a black marble coffee table with vicious corners. We drank glasses of fizzy wine at two o'clock on weekend afternoons, and then we napped until someone was roused, hours later by the sound of people walking outside to the bar. Sex happened, haircuts happened, 
I read the travel section of the newspaper and felt it was research, realistic research for the places we'd go next. I browsed expensive stores with a hot, foamy beverage in my hands. I wore Italian leather gloves in the winter. You golfed with friends. I cared about politics. We cuddled on a lounge chair and thought it was nice to be together, touching. Movies were a thing I could watch, something that could take my mind away from the place where I sat. Life was less visceral. Ideas were brighter. Words came easier. My period was light. You played music throughout the house, new stuff, artists someone had mentioned to you over a beer at an establishment filled with adults. The laundry soap wasn't organic and so our clothes smelled artificially mountain fresh. We went to the mountains. You asked about my writing. You drove a very impractical car every day until the fourth or fifth snowfall of the year. You wanted a dog. We noticed dogs on the street. We stopped to scratch their necks. The park was not my only reprieve from housework. The books we read had no pictures. We did not think about the impact of television screens on brains. We did not understand that children liked things best if they were manufactured for the purpose of an adult's use. We thought we knew each other and we thought we knew ourselves. Thank you so much. That's, <laughs> Thank you. I, when you started it, I could obviously remember what chapter four was, but as soon as you started, I thought, <laughs> I know where this is going and Aww. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. This is really lovely chatting with you. Thanks so much. It's been very nice. It's been very nice to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining us.